Well, we just sang O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, the number one Christmas song from the 12th century. It's a song of anticipation. Many might think that the coming of Christ, the incarnation, was a great surprise. That for the most part, no one expected it. Or was looking forward to it. And then, all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, Jesus appears. But what if I told you that a good portion A good portion of the Old Testament can be seen through the eyes of the anticipation of the Messiah. Now before I do that, though, I want to go to the New Testament for just a a couple of instances here. When Mary was visited by the angel and told that she would be the one who would give birth to the Christ, the Messiah, it's really interesting to note her response to the angel. For she did not ask, who is he? She asked, how can this be? She already knew who the angel was talking about, so she didn't have to ask, who is he? She just, how can this be? And it's further emphasized here when we read her song, especially when we come to Luke chapter 1. And in verse 54, in the midst uh, or toward the end of her song, he says, He has helped His servant Israel, notice this, in remembrance of His mercies. The mercies that God had promised back ages, even before Abraham. And then verse 55, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his seed forever. So this is what she knows already. This is something that's supposed to come. He, the Christ, was to come. The remembrance of the mercy of God and those things that were promised to the fathers. And we can see also with Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. And still in Luke chapter 1 and verse 68, as he has been told by the angel that he and Elizabeth are going to have uh, John the Baptist as their son and what he was going to do, he says in verse 68, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. You see, that promise that was given to David that he would always have someone on his throne forever pointed to the only fact that it could be fulfilled by the Messiah. And so therefore, this gets promise gets repeated over and over and over again. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Again, now notice verse 72, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, 
to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. Well, how can we serve him without fear? It would have to be that our sins are forgiven. And so therefore, in holiness and righteousness before him, all the days of our life. So there's no question about who it is that is coming. It's the one who had been anticipated. There was great joy in the fact that he was to come. And one other place while we're here, you don't have to turn far, in Luke chapter 2, after the child is born and they bring him to Jerusalem to present him at the temple, in verse 25 of chapter 2, and behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout. And what was he doing? Waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. The consolation of Israel. Once again, notice that there's this sadness, this sorrow. Our enemies have defeated us, but it's not just our physical enemies. It's the spiritual enemies. It's the things that have driven us from God. And so we have that description of Simeon, that he had been waiting for the consolation of Israel. The Holy Spirit had revealed to him that he would not even see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Messiah. That he was a devout man, that meant he was relying on the promises of God. The promises made thousands of years prior to this. Perhaps the worst day in the history of the world was the day our first parents sinned. That sinned in the garden and brought the fall of man on all mankind. But in the midst of this tragic scene, there's a blessed words of God that come You can imagine after the fall a great darkness descending on the garden. Great sorrow as God proclaims the curses on those who had taken part in this. But in the midst of pronouncing these woes, these curses, there's another curse that is pronounced but Half of it is a curse, and half of it is a blessing. In Genesis 3 and verse 15, it's certainly veiled. I heard Daryl using the illustration of being in a completely dark room. Where all you have to do is light even the slightest of a match, and it chases so much of that darkness away. And here it is. The greatest darkness that ever been experienced had come, spiritual darkness, at this point and this time, and all of a sudden, here's this little light. It seems to flicker, and it's not very bright. And it's been overlooked by so many. And remember now, the Lord is talking to the serpent. In essence, he's talking to the devil himself. And he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. That word seed is really important. A lot of different uh, modern translations use the word offspring. 
But there's a specific meaning to the word seed. And that word seed will come to Abraham and then proceed on. That's a very important word. And so I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. There will be two kinds of people, two kingdoms on this earth. Your seed and her seed, the seed of the devil, the seed of the woman. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The word bruise can really mean crushed. You shall crush your head. This, this is the first mention of the Messiah. The first coming of the Messiah. Certainly it's somewhat veiled, yet it's, it's clear enough. It's been called throughout the ages the proto-evangelium, the pre-gospel. Again, remember he's talking to the serpent, the devil. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he shall crush your head. He shall bruise his heel. There will be then the promise coming out of this. The seed of the woman who will crush the reign of the devil. And so at that point, interestingly enough, as we look at this, at that point, there became a great interest and a great anticipation. When will this seed come? Who will this seed be? And it manifests itself very quickly in Genesis 4 and verse 1. With the birth of Cain by all people. Genesis 4 verse 1, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. And she said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. I have gotten a man from the Lord. This, is, this might be it. This might be the one, the seed that was promised just a, a little while ago. So she shows great excitement here. We might not see it completely in the English translation, but the Hebrew is really quite animated. Yeah, I'm surprised that in most English translations, there's not an exclamation point after she says, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Because this is really great news. This is really something that she was hoping. First, first, we can say, yes, yeah, she's excited about the fact that, yeah, mankind's not going to die out because of their sin. All right. that, that, you can look at that. But also, here is this hope. This could be the one. So she was excited in the fact that life would continue. And why, in the way she speaks, causes one to think when she says she acquired a man from the Lord. This language has overtones that she perceived that the child would be the seed spoken of in 3 and 15. Now, let's make it clear. This is the only time she has a child that she makes that kind of claim for. And is excited about. Uh, there's nothing said when she gives birth to Abel. And even after the death of Abel, when Seth is born, all she say is God has appointed a replacement for Abel. So in all that she says, you notice the difference that that firstborn that Cain made to her. She thought, ah, this is the one of promise. And it didn't turn out that way, and she didn't think the others were either. And we read on in Genesis. Things don't get better, they get worse. 
Chapter 5 gives the genealogy that gives proof of the curse because no matter how long these men live, be it 900 years or more, it all, they all have the same thing written after the number of years that they lived. And he died. And he died. But then comes Noah. And there's great expectation that Noah could be the one who's going to deliver them from the curse. There certainly is a prefigurement of the Messiah here in Noah himself, sure. You can look at it that way. But I point you to Genesis 5 and verse 29. Lamech, his father, when, when Noah is born, in fact, Noah in itself points to the fact that they were hoping for something here because his, his name literally, the word Noah, name Noah literally means rest. But notice in Genesis 5, verse 29, and he called his name Noah, saying, this one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. So what was Lamech expecting? He was expecting his son to be the one that would reverse the curse. This one will comfort us because of the curse that's been placed on the ground. As we continue on in chapter 6, we see how the Lord is done with the ever-increasing evil and wickedness so he's going to destroy all of mankind, but he's going to save Noah and his family. He will start over with Noah and his family. So Noah becomes like a second Adam, but not exactly. And when they come off the ark, they are given the charge, the same charge that was given to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 is now in Genesis 9 and verse 1. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now Noah has something going on that's kind of like his first parents. Noah gets in trouble with fruit. And from the wrong use of that fruit, after a certain kind of abuse of that fruit, in Genesis 9 and verse 20, we find him naked and ashamed. Two of his sons cover him up. One is over there laughing at him. So here comes the end of the expectation. This is not going to be the sinless one to bring a reverse to the curse. Our next stop is the journey is of expectation takes us to Genesis 12. Abraham comes onto the scene. Abraham will be the father of a nation, a people of God. And he is told by God himself in verse 3 of chapter 12, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, when I clarify this, the first thing some people say, well, he's anti-Semite. He's anti-Semite, isn't he? He doesn't like the Jews. But the thing is, I love the Jews, and I wish, like Paul, to see them saved like everybody else will be saved. But 
sometimes they, they jump on this and they say, well, this is speaking of the nation of Israel. I will bless those who bless you and I'll curse him who curses you. I've even seen that used in the commercial here recently. But he's talking to Abraham. He's not talking to a race of people. He's talking to Abraham specifically here. And it was from him, from a seed that will come from him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, as much as the Jews have done and in a fine people they have been, they have not been a blessing to every single nation on the face of the earth. That promise can only be made through Jesus Christ, fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Because only He will bless all the nations of the earth. But Abraham, for all the faith he showed, showed also in his behavior that he would not be a Savior, but indeed he would need one himself. But there's a promise to Abraham. In chapter 17, God promises him that he will have a seed, and that seed would be a child of promise that would be Isaac, his son Isaac. And so he receives the same oath and covenant from God as did his father in Genesis 26. Isaac receives that same promise and covenant from God. But two things, the promise was once again in his seed that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And as his father... Isaac had trouble with telling the truth also. Well, then there was Jacob. Jacob will even receive a name change by God. He will be called, go from Jacob to Israel. And he receives the same promises Abraham and Isaac had received. But instead of being a deliverer, instead of being a savior, they become like their father, Abraham. And we can fast forward on to Joseph. Joseph was a type of a savior, but he was not the savior, and he would be forgotten. Moses then would come on the scene, a deliverer. Even one that God says to, to, to Moses after he's fed up with the behavior of the, the Israelites, he said, I'm going to get rid of them and make a whole new nation out of you. Moses intercedes for the people. So there's a, a prefigurement of Christ there for us. But then again, Moses himself needed a Savior. And he proclaimed that he wasn't the one anyway. He said, there's going to be a prophet like me who is to come. Him he shall hear. And Moses would be blessed by being used of God through the things that would be taking place to give the greatest illustration of salvation that's ever been seen. The, the greatest of all illustrations, and that is taking a people out of Egypt, bondage, which is the picture of people in sin. Sin is bondage. There would be a man, one man, who is it? Moses, he's a deliverer. What does he do? He takes the people from bondage into freedom and into the promised land. It's the greatest illustration of salvation that you find in the Old Testament. But there's a problem. Moses sins. Moses, can you take us to the promised land? No, 
I'm not going there myself. So then there's Joshua. Joshua is so popular, Jeshua, that even the name is the same as Jesus. And so there would be untold number of children who would have that same name at the time that Jesus would be born. And so a lot of times, this Jesus. Why? Well, because there's so many others who have that name. Well, then there were the kings. There was David. David was a type of a savior, but we all know about David. David needed forgiveness. David needed a savior. Then there was Solomon. Well, read in 2 Kings what his reign was like at the first, and you're so amazed. There's never been a time where it was so united for such a while. And just the, uh, oh, the, the success and the excess, the prosperity that was there. And you think, wow, Solomon is really, I mean, do you get the wisdom that Solomon has and all that's going for him? And then you read 2 Kings 11. And Solomon had many wives. And they turned his heart away from God. Even to the point that he started worshiping those foreign gods as well. None of the kings, Hezekiah, Uzziah, none of them were good enough. They had potential and it looked good, but they all had great failings that showed they needed a savior too. So two centuries after David, prophets arose. And they spoke as Isaiah did of the, the coming the coming one, and they used illustrative words like the branch, the stem, and the root of Jesse or of David, all pointing to someone out of the lineage of David and out of the tribe of Judah. And we begin to hear those words like we do in Isaiah chapter 9. In verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Here you go. And upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so you see that picture of, it's, it's, it hasn't happened in Isaiah's time, but it's so sure of a prophecy that he can speak of it as being a present tense. Unto us a child is born. And then we can go quickly to chapter 53. In verse 1, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up, it's a reference to Christ, before him as a tender plant. Notice again, as a root out of dry ground. He has no former comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. In verse 10, where he get it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper 
in his hand. He shall see the travail or labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So there's that picture. It's a great, you know, you could say, some people say that uh, you know, Isaiah is like the fifth gospel. But the pictures are so strong. And use of the present tense makes it sure that these things are to happen. Of course, Jeremiah, the prophet, also so many times foretells of this. People get confused sometimes and they think it's a resurrection of a, a geographic nation and, and the uh, ethnic state. No, this is the kingdom of Christ that he's speaking of. And in chapter 23 and verse 3, but I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their folds and they shall be fruitful and increase. And I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them. And they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely now this is his, is his name by which he will be called. The Lord, our righteousness. The Lord, our righteousness. It's clear, as we saw from the beginning, the hope was kept alive amidst the constant disappointments. We find that they still looked for his coming. Even one who would provide a tomb for Jesus. Described in Mark 15 and verse 20 and 43, Joseph of Arimathea was described as one who was waiting for the kingdom of God. In Isaiah 25 and verse 9, it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And we notice in that one verse, he repeats that whole idea. We waited for him. I know we've been to a lot of different places here in scripture. But I invite you to join me as we come to John chapter 4. John chapter 4 also continues to prove this great point. In John chapter 4, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. And she's surprised that he asked her for a drink. In verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God who, is, who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. 
where then are you going to get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Yeah. Who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? You know, she's going back to Jacob on this. Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and have him come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you truly speak, speak truly. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now what? Watch the response in verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Even this Samaritan woman knew that the Messiah was coming and was in somewhat anticipation of him, although not face to face. Now those who say, well, you know, Jesus never said anything. Well, verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I am. I am. When Jesus was baptized in Matthew 3 and verse 17, we say, we heard that there was a voice that came down from heaven, came from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Who did he say that about prior to that? No one. It is as God is saying, there is one on earth finally with whom I am well pleased. It took... Over 7,000 years for those words to be spoken. For in that passage of time, there was not one human being on the face of the earth that God could say, I am well pleased. That's why when we come to Romans 5, Paul spends almost half of the chapter in comparison of the first Adam to the second Adam. And some people say, oh, isn't that a neat little thing that Paul came up with? No, Paul is making the point that after the first Adam, everybody anticipated, those who were truly of the Lord, anticipated that second Adam that would remove the curse of the first Adam. The first causes our need for salvation. The second 
brings that salvation. He ends the search. Now, maybe you see the great and wondrous place we inhabit. Maybe you see why we celebrate the Advent. Nearly 7,000 years, people, devout people have searched and prayed and longed for this time. Now the search is over. We need to look no more. The Redeemer has come. He is Christ. And we look nowhere else, as, as God would say, look unto me and be saved. God was in Christ. So where are we today? To look elsewhere. To look elsewhere for redemption. To look elsewhere for salvation. To look elsewhere is to sin. And to sin grossly. It is, if you will, the unpardonable sin. There's only one name under heaven by which we must be saved. He is Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Let's stand together for prayer.